Well, a very good morning to you all. It's lovely to see you here this morning. Uh, and if you can have your Bibles open to the book of Philippians, that will be a great help to you as we go through this this morning. But before we start, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning. You speak to our hearts through your word, that by the power of your spirit, you will help us to grasp the truths that we look at. Lord, some truths are, are hard for us to grasp. They're hard not necessarily because they're hard to understand, but because they're just hard to, to grapple with, to truly believe. So we ask for your help this morning, Lord. Soften our hearts that we might receive that word. And do us good, we pray. Amen. Well, Romans 8, verse 28, has always been a precious promise to God's people throughout history. Perhaps you know the verse. Romans 8, 28. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That verse tells us, in no uncertain terms, doesn't it, that though we might not be able to understand how, everything that happens in our lives, as those who know and who love God, is under his all-powerful control. And it will always, says the Apostle, work out for and result in our good and that's a truth that's far easier to articulate than it is to believe sometimes, isn't it? You know, when, when life is, is going really, really well, we can all sing, I know who holds the future uh, and he'll guide me with his hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. Amen. But when your marriage falls apart and a loved one dies or you lose your job or you receive a terminal diagnosis... Well, it's another story, isn't it? It's hard. Romans 8.28 holds a truth, then, that should be handled with some kind of a pastoral care, shouldn't it? A shepherdly care. You know, it's not, to be not a truth to be waved around clumsily. It's, uh, you know, that, that whole idea always reminds me of the book of Proverbs, where Proverbs 26, verse 9, you get this picture uh, that, that a proverb, a piece of wisdom, a piece of truth, a wise truth in, in the hands or in the mouth of a fool, says the book of Proverbs, is like a thorn bush in the hand of a drunkard. You picture that? You, know, you get a drunk person with a, with a great big jaggedy thorn bush and he's just swinging it around like a, like a fool. Now, now, that's, that's something for us to think about, isn't it, with truths like this? Because this is one of those truths that, that is far easier to believe in the armchair than it is in the wheelchair. See what I mean. On July the 30th, 1967, an athletic and active 17-year-old girl took a dive into the Chesapeake Bay. She had misjudged the depth of the water and the impact broke her neck and left her a quadriplegic, paralysed from the neck down. Her name was Johnny Erickson Tarder. Maybe you know her story. And over the following two years, she talks about how she experienced anger and depression and suicidal thoughts. 
But her faith in Jesus Christ was what got her through. And over 50 years later, she is still able to delight in the truths of that verse from Romans chapter 8. Listen to her testimony. She says this. Think of some of the all things that have happened in your life. It is, is it hard to think that those things, those awful things, could possibly be used by God to do something good in you or in the lives of those around you? If you are doubting that that could happen, I understand, I get it. I'm the lady with the broken neck. And at first I had the hardest time trusting God with Romans 8, 28. I couldn't imagine that the good God wanted to do in and with my life would ever outweigh the grief, the tears, the disappointment of losing the use of my arms and my legs. It was unthinkable. It was impossible. But God enjoys doing impossible things. And so as I began to hold fast to Romans 8, 28, I prayed. And this is what I would pray. Oh, Jesus, this is your promise, not mine. You said you can do this. So I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to stop bad-mouthing my diving accident as though it was the worst thing that ever happened. I'm going to stop playing the victim, drawing on people's sympathies. I'm going to stop blaming you for even allowing my accident. Okay, no more complaining, God. Instead, I'm going to trust that you have it all in hand for a purpose of making me, I don't know, maybe a better, different person. Frankly, I had to finally believe that God's idea of good you know, using my disability to make me more like Jesus, I had to believe that that was more desirous than walking. I had to desire the life of Christ in me more than having the use of my hands. Could I do it? Could I believe it? I decided yes. Now, did I change overnight? Of course not. Oh, my goodness. But the point is, I started moving forwards into life saying, yes, I am going to believe. Romans 8.28, believing that to be like Jesus is the best, the sweetest, the most fulfilling and desirable thing I could ever, ever want. And you know what? It is. The Apostle Paul would have agreed with that testimony, wouldn't he? Now, the last few years before writing this letter to the church in Philippi had been no picnic for the Apostle. Let me fill you in in the gap. He had nearly been killed <clears throat> by a mob in Jerusalem when he went to the temple. They had falsely accused him of bringing, bringing Greeks into the temple, a, a serious offence. But thankfully, before he was torn apart by the crowds, the Roman peacekeepers and their commander tried to sort things out. The Jewish crowd had become frenzied. They were really worked up. They wanted Paul disposed of because they knew from his own mouth that he was a missionary to the Gentiles. And the commander, this Roman commander, decided the best thing to do to pacify the crowds would be to take Paul off and give him a further flogging. So he's already been beaten up by the crowds. We'll take him off and whip him just to please the crowds, I suppose. And at this point, Paul plays his Roman citizenship card. As they're stretching him out for the beating, literally as they're doing that, he inquires, he asks the question, excuse me, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And this drains the colour from the faces of the commander and his, and his men. I mean, you shouldn't even put a Roman citizen in chains, you know, without, without fair trial. 
And so the commander arranges a meeting with, between Paul and the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council. But this trial goes wrong, actually, right from the outset as well, because they've already made their minds up about Paul. They hate him. And the commander has to rescue him once again. And then we read that 40 men become involved in a plot. We're looking forward to getting to this part. It's exciting in the book of Acts. With the blessing of those same Jewish authorities, they set up an ambush for Paul so that they can kill him. In fact, these 40 men vow that they will neither eat anything or drink anything until the deed is done, until, I wonder whether they kept that promise, until Paul, until Paul was killed. The commander gets wind of this and has Paul then moved to Herod's palace in Caesarea, and he stays there. Not, I don't know whether languishing, but probably languishing. For the next two years, he's imprisoned in the palace. And Paul gives his testimony during that period before the Roman governor Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Uh, and then he's succeeded by Festus, who also invites Herod Agrippa and his wife, Bernice, to hear what Paul has to say. So he's being kept you know, in, in prison and, tr and put on trial frequently. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar and is shipped off to Rome to stand in the court in Rome. Uh, and incidentally, on the way to Rome, he also suffers a terrifying storm, a shipwreck, uh, before he makes it to the capital of the empire. And, and now he's sitting, as he's writing these letters, he's imprisoned. He's awaiting trial before the imperial court. So, so that's where Paul is as he writes these words. I mean, you want to talk about hardships or injustice, or opposition, or trials. Paul knows all about it, doesn't he? Which is what makes verse 12 here all the more striking. Take a look again. Paul writes to them and says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, all of this, <laughs> has really served to advance the gospel. It's an incredible sentence, isn't it? Remember, these Philippians, these people of Philippi, these Christians there, they loved Paul. And they loved the gospel. More than that, according to Paul's own words in verse 5, the cause of the gospel, the desire to see the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ preached across the earth was right at the heart. It was the essence of the fellowship that they enjoyed with Paul. That was what brought them together in this bond. Uh, so bad enough that this man that they loved was in prison, if the advance of the gospel had been hindered, if Paul's enemies had won and shut him up and stopped the spread of the good news, then all of these disasters would have upset them greatly. And so Paul knows that they urgently need a reminder that God's plans are still unthwarted, unhindered, and completely on course. Brothers and sisters, says Paul, fear not. The gospel is advancing. Not just in spite of, but because of my imprisonment. It's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? Now, Paul has had time, no doubt, to contemplate. I mean, he's probably spent a lot of time sitting, hasn't he, and thinking. 
Maybe, maybe this is what's dominated his thoughts. I'm sure it was a big part of it. Contemplating how has what God has allowed to happen to me worked out for my good and for the good of his people. How does that work? Sometimes, you see, these things can be really hard to see. Sometimes we never know the details, actually. But surely it is always a good exercise in times of trial, in times of difficulty, to contemplate that question. I know he has his purposes, but what might God be doing in and through me through this? Well, Paul shares his conclusions in the verses that follow. We're going to look at those this morning. They're in verses 12 to 19. First is this. First, the unreachable are reached. Take a look again at verse 12 and 13. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Now, the best group, uh, the best guess, sorry, about this group of people in verse 13 that are called here the palace guard, or the, you know, the word used is the praetorium guard, is that these were the emperor's personal bodyguards. They numbered, you know, some 9,000, and they were seasoned veteran soldiers. Their job, amongst other, other things, was to keep the palace secure, this extensive palace secure in Rome. You might imagine that such an elite group of, of, you know, a disciplined regiment would have to keep themselves separate from civilian affairs, always potentially on duty. Yeah, you don't muck about, you don't get involved in civilian affairs. Perhaps a bit like, you know, the beef eaters that we have down at, at Buckingham Palace, the yeoman guards, you know, those highly disciplined, experienced, sort of, in, in a sense, almost detached from the world, aren't they? How would you reach a select group like that with the gospel? How would they ever hear about Jesus Christ? Well, how about you chain each of them in turn to the Apostle Paul for a few hours? That would work, wouldn't it? Now, from what Paul says in verse 13 there, the whole palace guard were now aware of the reasons for Paul's chains. They all knew. It was because of Jesus Christ that he's in chains. So I'm guessing barely a day went by when Paul didn't get a chance, an opportunity to share the gospel with his guards. And and what's more, they couldn't walk away. As a result, Paul's able to sign off his letter. And I always think this is staggering, isn't it? He signs off the letter in chapter 4, not just with greetings from his fellow missionaries, but look at chapter 4, verse 22. He says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. It's brilliant, isn't it? Now, you know, it is a good thing to consider in our trials, isn't it? Things like this. How has the crisis or the sorrow that I have put me in contact with people that I might never have been put in contact with? Is that something that's happened from it? Be encouraged, says Paul. The unreached are being reached. And what's more, secondly, verse 14, ministers are multiplied. Paul continues, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? Not just some of them, but most of the brothers have been encouraged to be braver, to be less fearful in ministry. Now, no doubt that had a lot to do with, you know, with Paul's, Paul's whole attitude to what he was going through. As they interacted with him, they would have seen this. The church in Rome had, had come to see that Paul faced an uncertain future at this point. How was Caesar going to judge him? Is it going to be thumbs up or thumbs down for Paul? But he faces that prospect with joy and with confidence. We'll look more at that next week. Surely then, this, <clears throat> this lived out confidence in God's good purposes had a profound impact on their faith giving them backbone, as Paul says here, and a confidence to do daring deeds, to take risks for the gospel, like Paul had. But another knock-on effect would be that, practically speaking, Paul is out of action. He's been benched, as it were, by the authorities. And so others will now need to step up and fill in the gaps where Paul had been ministering. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, about the way that people work. And you see this in a, in a lot of churches, churches that I've certainly served in. In some churches, more than others, you get this mentality that as soon as you employ someone to take on a particular area of ministry, you know, as you get a growing staff, those who've been volunteering in that area tend to sort of step back from it. So, you know, you get this dynamic, don't you? With every extra staff member, you get less volunteers, less lay involvement, as it were. Now, I'm not saying that that's true of Walton Evangelical Church. But you can understand why that kind of thing happens, can't you? When a particularly gifted or, or able individual arrives, those who are perhaps left less gifted start to feel a bit surplus to requirements. Why would they want me to do this role anymore when, when so-and-so is so much better than I am at this? And, but the trouble is, though, that even if so-and-so is more gifted, she's still mortal. And, and you, you, you're going to send her or him to an early resignation if you dump everything on them. Well, I mean, that is a little beside the point. The point is here... Think about it. With Paul benched, consider how many others might be called to serve and to minister who might otherwise have not. And just said, oh, Paul's just so good at this. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just sit and watch. <laughs> and the thing is here is that when they did, when they did step up and volunteer, they started to grow, to become bolder. That's what's happening in this verse, isn't it? They had a go and they found, actually, actually do you know what? I... I, I I can do this. And with God's help, there's fruit. They see God producing this wonderful fruit in them and growing them. And it encourages Paul. And he wants to encourage the Philippians. In trials and in sorrows and in difficulties, does your example give, give courage to others to face similar things? Are there those, perhaps, who have taken over the roles that you can no longer do? And if so, do you rejoice to see God at work in them, growing them, using them to bless others? Good things to think about when you're benched, aren't they? Thirdly then, verses 15 to 18, look. The word is spread. 
The word is spread. Look at verse 15. It is true, says Paul, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. He's talking about all these people that have risen up to, to do this preaching. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. There's some very interesting sentences there, aren't there? It was good to think these through. Paul points out that people can have different motives for preaching Christ. And you may not agree with some of them. I'm sure Paul didn't. I think we have to assume, have a look at these verses, that no matter what their motives were in this particular situation, so whether they were preaching out of love for Paul and a desire to keep his ministry going, or whether they're actually doing it to stir up trouble for him, either way, all parties concerned, the underlying assumption is, are actually preaching Christ. They're actually preaching Christ. I take it to mean that, that that means that they're correctly representing Jesus for who he is in what they're teaching. He is the son of God, God's anointed king, the one before whom all knees will bow one day. And they're preaching what he's done, giving his infinitely precious life on the cross to pay the debt of our sin. They're preaching Christ. They're preaching the gospel. Whether from a heart of love or out of selfish ambition, says Paul. That probably means, selfish ambition probably means that their aim, well, it certainly means it's, it's self-centred, doesn't it? But it probably means their aim is to try and take control, to take control of the church, to win converts and win people over to themselves whilst Paul is out of action so that they can boast, boast about what they've achieved, so they can have enough influence so that, you know, within, within the church that they can turn the church against Paul if he's ever released. They can get their own way. They have nefarious purposes, don't they? It's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, it always amazes me. The few occasions I've actually sat down out of curiosity and watched some of the more notorious televangelists. I don't know if you've ever done this on YouTube or something like that. You know, the, the, the ones that are the, the stereotypes out there. They say some shocking things. They do some shocking things. Their agenda becomes quite clear. They're just trying to fleece the sheep, aren't they? To manipulate people into giving them money. But this is the weird thing. You will often also find at some point during those broadcasts, the gospel actually makes an appearance. It's most bizarre. They will actually tell people that Jesus is the saviour and that salvation is found only in trusting him. Oh, and give me your money. I mean, it's just, it's weird. It's a strange juxtaposition of things. To their shame, they use the, you know, they use the name of Christ to add credence to their profiteering. But the gospel is preached. It's so strange. Now, I'm not sure that these stirrers, as Paul calls them, are doing anything quite so crass as that, quite so in your face. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul would have had words to say to anyone who used the gospel as a means to personal or financial gain. I mean, he indicates as much in his first letter to Timothy. Remember, he talks about those false teachers in Ephesus 
who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But, says Paul here, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. It's a really challenging lesson here, isn't it? Are we able then to separate the motives people have from the results that God is achieving through it? That's the, that's the, that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, I speak to friends here in front of me. We, we may have been let down and hurt by those who have made trouble in the past. Those whose met- methods, those whose motives we do not agree with. They may have done damage. They may have left wounds that still hurt. But can we separate all of that from the fact that whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached? Can we do that? We don't all have to join hands and sing Kumbaya. But can we rejoice, at least, as Paul says at the end of verse 18, that Christ is being preached, at the very least, by those with whom we might have all kinds of problems and difficulties. Do we believe, here's the bottom line, do we believe that God is so sovereign, so in control of all things, that he can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line? That's the point, isn't it? Amazingly, Paul can do this, and he can add this too to the ways in which he sees God bringing blessing out of his difficulties. And he sees it in one more place too. Let's just look at that in verse 19. He sees that God's servant is being perfected. He continues, end of verse 18. Because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does Paul mean? The big question on this verse, really. What does Paul mean here when he says he knows that what has happened to him will turn out for his deliverance? What does that mean? Well, some suggest, you know, they take a surface reading of it, suggest that God must have, you know, maybe told Paul that at some point soon he's going to be released. That is, to be delivered from his confinement. I I don't think that really fits with where the rest of chapter 1 goes but it's a view. The actual word here, though, means not necessarily, well, I mean, it doesn't mean deliverance, but the word me is the word for salvation. It's just, this will work out for my salvation. And it seems likely, more likely to me, that what Paul is ending this little section of chapter one with is a personal application of the very truths he's encouraged them with in verses three to 11. Perhaps you remember, think this through with me. Perhaps you remember, Paul sees our salvation as as, as a journey or perhaps actually as, as a work of art might be a better way of thinking about it. So he reminds the Philippians in verse six that it is God who began a good work. That is, it is God who, who, who began the good work of salvation in his people. And that it is God who continues that work day by day, transforming us into his holy people. And it is God who will complete that work. 
And that is precisely what he prays for them in verses 9 to 11, isn't it? Remember? That they might be filled with gospel love, knowledge and insight so that they're able to discern and choose the most excellent, the most Christ-like and God-glorifying way through life. That's what he's praying for them. That the, the progress we made in that journey. Surely then, what we have here in verse 19 is Paul applying the principle that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and so all of the adversity that he has faced and is facing is actually a part of his salvation. This too will turn out to be part of my salvation, yeah? my deliverance, my salvation. He is saved, yes, of course. God began that work. And these things, all the things we've thought about, all the adversity in his life, they are all part of the present ongoing experience of his salvation, which God is completing and perfecting. This is, in other words, all part of God's most excellent plan for Paul. And the preceding verses here that we've just looked at this morning, what do they do? They show us that God has given Paul that knowledge and that depth of insight he needed to be able to see it and to encourage his brothers and sisters with it. Well, brothers and sisters, may we likewise see by faith God's hand at work in adversity, in trouble, in sickness and sorrow. And may we too know the joy and the peace that comes from holding fast to the promises of God. Our God who saves completely. Our God who is always at work. Our God who makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. Father, each person here has a different burden to bear in this life. And you know us. You know our lives, our hearts, our minds. You know how we're made. You understand suffering, hardship, rejection, betrayal, ridicule, mockery, exhaustion, emotional agony, physical pain. You know it all. You are our great high priest able to sympathise with our condition. But more than that, in your awesome sovereign power, you're able to work all these trials and afflictions together so that they bring only ultimate good for your people who love you. We may only see the underside of the tapestry of this life, full of knots and tangles, but you are weaving beauty and perfection. So grant us the depth of insight to see these things, we pray. And help us to trust you when we cannot. And may our testimony be that you are good to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose sovereign name we pray. Amen.